And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in today. If you're like many Minnesotans, you're probably thinking about a summer vacation, how to beat the hot weather next week, maybe cutting the grass. But if you're part of a very small subset, you may, be, may not be thinking about any of those things. Instead, you may be looking at polling data, checking campaign finance reports, or maybe even ad rates at TV stations. And if you're doing any of those things, you are probably working on a political campaign, or you could be a political analyst. Two of those analysts from opposite sides of the aisle are with me today. Abu Amara is a Democratic strategist. He's an attorney, former legislative staffer. And Brian McDaniel is here. He's a Republican strategist, also a lawyer, former legislative staffer, and a member of the team that does the Wrong About Everything podcast. Thanks to both of you for coming on today. Thanks for having us on. Thanks so much. Let me just tell the folks listening, if you have a question about uh, Minnesota politics or the campaign, give us a call. 651-227-6000 is the number. 651-227-6000. If you still use the toll-free number, that one is 1-800-242-2828. Abu Amara, let me start with you. Uh, Last night, legislative leaders had a meeting. They came out and said, talks are at an impasse. There will be no special session. Looks like the huge budget surplus will just sit there until next year. Was that at all a surprise to you? To me, it wasn't a surprise. I think for many uh, going into session, there were really two major sticking points that were going to drive the end of session negotiations. First was around hero pay and making sure people that got us through the pandemic were going to receive money. And the second was around unemployment insurance and really making sure that businesses didn't take a massive hit coming out of the pandemic. Once those two major issues were resolved, there really weren't leverage points to keep the Republicans at the table. And so as the end of session uh, came upon us, there really weren't any uh, pieces to keep them at the table. And so when session expired, it didn't surprise me that, you know, we'll probably be moving into the election with that money on the bottom line. Brian McDaniel, any surprise to you? Uh, no, no, no. And to, and to almost paraphrase Homer Simpson, just because I don't agree doesn't mean I don't understand. I, 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 I think that it would have been, there was a lot that was negotiated, like the tax bill with $4 billion worth of tax cuts, that what would have been really good for Minnesotans, and frankly, really good for Republicans and Democrats uh, to run on. It would have been nice to have seen that. It was also a bonding year. There was a big bonding bill um, that uh, you know provides jobs, provides you know necessary infrastructure infrastructure uh, to the state of Minnesota. But, but you know, the, there was $4 billion worth of spending that was agreed upon, you know, in a, you know, global kind of way between the governor and legislative leadership. But there was a disconnect between the governor, legislative leadership, and the rank and file, because they never really um, got buy-in from both Republican and from some Republican and mm. some uh, DFL uh, committee chairs, um, because the, you know, having watched many of the conference committees, there were some conference committees where I thought the Republicans were, were being too strident on a position. Mm. And there were some where I was in there going, the DFL is not necessarily uh, serious about negotiating some of these things. So um, I'm disappointed, but I understand how it happened. I guess this is what happens when the budget is balanced and then there's a huge amount of money that they have to divide up. They just can't do it. Well, let me, Abu, ask you, uh, Governor Walls said this week he thinks uh, some Republicans were dragging their feet on reaching a deal because they have primaries in August and they didn't want to be seen as cooperating with uh, 
with a DFL governor. Do you think there's any truth to that? Well, that always is going to play a role. That might be shocking to some voters, but there's there's politics and politics, right? And so um, a lot of those folks, yeah, they were concerned that if I'm looking like I'm a you know squishy or more moderate, that might be a problem in my August primary. You know, I just look back to uh, the Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka, a guy who you know, for you know. From my perspective, did a good job from a conservative standpoint of trying to uh, govern uh, for the past couple of years, and I think he was punished for that in the endorsement process for governor. And so I think there's a lesson to be learned there for many Republicans mm-hmm. that if you're going to uh, be productive in negotiating with members of the DFL, the Republicans may punish you in August or in November. Brian McDaniel, what do you think? Well, this is why it was so important to get these deals done during regular regular session because once they were kind of released to their, um, you know, to go back to their districts. And uh, once May 31st came up and then they got to see whether they had primary opponents, it just made the, the you know, the mindset shift um, towards politics, towards, uh, towards uh, you know, their elections. And, um, you know, uh, Minnesota has a late primary. Our primary is August 9th. Um, is it possible that after the primary that, you know, special session talks could be rekindled? Yes, that is, that is possible. But um, right now, um, I, I just can't see it happening. And, and uh, I think that there is lots of blame to go around, but it's important get your work done during the t- during during uh, special regular session hmm. and find out what deal. I mean, the art of making deals has kind of been lost up at the Capitol, and everybody says, "Well, I'm going to stick to my guns, and they're going to eventually just do it my way." Well, that doesn't always work, and it usually doesn't work. Um, but it seems like that's what we've fallen back on. Well, let me ask you this question because Jeremy Miller said last night in a statement that. Uh, Democrats are just out of step with Minnesotans, he said, not with not with Republicans, but with Minnesotans when it comes to spending. Do you agree with that? Well, I mean, I I, I think that it depends on what areas are we talking about, Um, because for a lot of the areas that Jeremy Miller represents or his caucus represents and the areas that Jeremy Miller uh, wants to make headway in in the election, he's absolutely right. Uh, right now, where the DFL is, um, is not in line with mo- a lot of rural Minnesota, uh, with a lot of ex-urban uh, Minnesota. The question is, is where are the suburbs? Hmm. Um, and that remains to be seen. Abu, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, well, I, I just disagree with that. I think it's not a question of how much you're spending. It's it's what are you spending it on, and are those the priorities of Minnesotans? And the DFL, we believe that is the case. For example, the House Democrats put forth a proposal, $450 million into public safety, so we could hire more officers, so we could recruit more officers, so we could put more cops on the beat, because we understand that public safety is an issue. That was blocked by the Republicans. Another issue, public infrastructure, the bonding bill. Democrats wanted to put a lot of cash, as opposed to putting it on the credit card, cash into the bonding bill so we could fix bridges, roads, civic centers all across Minnesota. That was a proposal that ultimately didn't get through at the end of session. And so I think we get in this fallacy of saying, well, you know, that's a lot of money and that's out of step of Minnesota voters. We have a historic surplus in Minnesota. And I think Minnesotans expected historic investments around the things that we care about. And a lot of those were blocked because of the Senate Republicans. And so now Democrats are going to have to take that narrative into the election and explain to voters while they're, you know, struggling with inflation, struggling with, you know, high cost of gas. Minnesotans or the Democrats wanted to give much of this money back to Minnesotans. And the Republicans are going to have to explain why they blocked a lot of these proposals from happening. Brian, quick word. Well, I think that, uh, you know, when you talk about public safety, um, it wasn't that there wasn't agreement 
or, or there wasn't uh, a, a, a a willingness to spend four hundred and fifty million dollars on on public safety. There was the question was how do you spend it? Just like just like what Abu said. But what the what the uh, House and Senate Republicans wanted to do is they wanted to take that money and they wanted to put it towards you know increasing the numbers of uh, of officers because I believe and that's where I think there's a, a disconnect between what the DFL wants to do and what the people want to do because the people don't feel safe and uh, you know whether you agree with the, uh, you know police actions or 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 you don't or so you're somewhere in the middle i think that almost everybody says we need a larger stronger more present uh police force and that would have happened the other thing with the bonding bill the bonding bill would have been a really good thing it would have been you know i think well over a billion dollars in in infrastructure the cash part um that would have gone towards the reason why you do cash is because that goes towards things that aren't eligible right. for for general obligation bonds so that and but but what i also will say is I don't think that the bonding bill got negotiated enough to actually have been a problem. I think they didn't get close enough on education, public safety, transportation, health and human services, so that they never even got to the bonding bill. Well, the public certainly never saw it if they, if it was done. Oh, I've uh, been asking for it. I don't. I don't. I don't think there is, there's much to see. That's Brian McDaniel. He's a Republican strategist. He's our guest today, along with Abu Amara. He's a DFL strategist. And uh, you can join the conversation. If you have a question about Minnesota politics, the campaign that's going on right now, give us a call. 651-227-6000 is the number. 651-227-6000. Abu, let me ask you, let me uh, zoom out a little bit. Uh, gas, $5 a gallon. Inflation just hit 8.5%. Interest rates are going up now. And we just talked about crime going up. Is there any way Democrats can pull this out this fall and win? So part of this is an expectations game. So I'd, I'd kind of break out those issues to me are kind of issues of the moment. But even, go, you know, set those aside for a moment. Democrats are going to be facing headwinds anyway. Historically, going back to 1934, there's only two exceptions to the general rule that if your president is in power, you're going to lose seats in the midterm. You look at the shellacking that Obama took in 2010. Mm-hmm. You look at the, the, the Democratic wave in 2018. And so structurally, we were going to face issues anyway. But then you add on top of that inflation, you add on top of that gas prices. I think what this is going to come down to is it's not a fight over kind of, you know, inflation or or, or even that's going to matter. I think it's really going to be about mobilization. How do we define this election? And I think Democrats, while addressing inflation, and you saw the Fed come out with higher interest rates, you saw the administration really trying to clamp down on inflation. But there's really not much they can do from a policy tool standpoint. And so part of what we're going to have to do is mobilize voters around other issues. And I think that's going to be how we kind of push back against this, what some would like to believe is a red wave. And so an example of that is when the Supreme Court comes out and we believe is going to uh, undo a woman's right to choose, we are going to make sure that that's an issue we mobilize voters around. Um, In terms of education, Democrats wanted to put a billion dollars into uh, our, our schools and our kids, especially after the pandemic, right? And so th- those are the types of issues we're really going to mobilize voters around and make sure that they understand, yes, you are. Sh- it- it's a tough time right now, but if we stick together and we invest in things that we care about, we can come out better on the other side. 
Brian, with all those anchors uh, weighing down Democrats, why uh, are the polls showing tight races for governor and other other offices? Shouldn't Republicans be running away with this thing at this point? Well, I think most people in the political class would say that because it's a tight race, that shows exactly how much trouble the Democrats are in. Um, I think that uh, with uh, you know some some largely positive at least feelings about how uh, uh, Governor Walls handled certain parts of the pandemic. Um, I think Republicans would really like this to be a referendum on closing bars and restaurants, on closing schools. I don't really feel like that is what the referendum is. But even with all of that, you know, you know, I think the the, the MinPost poll we saw had Governor Jensen. I mean, I'm sorry, Doctor Scott. <laughs> get ahead of myself. Oh, that was, that get, was subtle. Get, get ahead of myself. <laughs> uh, of, of getting uh, uh, Doctor Jensen within within two points, and this is before. Um, you know, people have actually been able to define, um, you know, themselves. And, the, you know, Governor Walls has much more money than Governor Jensen. So, uh, so Senator Jensen, I apologize. Um, so uh, he will have an opportunity to define Senator Jensen. But um, everything that's leading up to this um, is just bad, bad, bad. And a lot of it is because there is not a lot of confidence right now, certainly on the federal level, that, you know, President Biden and, and, and Vice President uh, Harris, that they are in any way, shape or form on top of some of these large national problems that are ha- affecting everybody. Mike, I think mm-hmm. that polling speaks to the hyperpolarization we're in, that you can kind of point to an issue here or an issue there. At the end of the day, 44% are going to be locked in with one party, 44% are going to be locked in another and it's a mobilization race and so even though the terrain isn't as strong for democrats democrats can still pick up gains and so what i expect to see in november is a national sentiment but that is going to be very different than a minnesota sentiment so i would point you to 2010 2010 the democrats like i said took a shellacking at Mm -hmm. the national level lost a bunch of seats in the house lost seats in the senate but if you look what happened here in minnesota at the state level democrats won every constitutional office they won the governor's race. They won the attorney general race. They won the race for state auditor. They won all of these races at the state level. And just two years later, then ultimately ended up taking the state house and the state senate. So I think at the state level, Minnesotans are going to, I believe, support the DFL. Nationally, is going to be a different conversation. Brian? Well, and I think directly to to uh, to Abu's point, you know, going back to 2010, you know, what happened with the state house and the state senate? Those were, were both under Republican control. Now, also accurate saying that eventually that that did flip the dfl was then in charge of everything did not get you know their their priorities done and then things flipped back minnesota you know we, we kind of tend to do that um so i think that uh, the you know minnesota dfl will and usually does do better in statewide races because they can rely on hennepin county and ramsey county in individual senate races and in individual house races you know a lot of the issues that are going to motivate Democrats, uh, whether it be guns or whether it be women's right to choose, whatever that is, those are not going to play the way the DFL needs them to. And it's going to lead to uh, gains and uh, majorities uh, for the House and Senate Republicans. Uh, we mentioned uh, the campaign finance reports this week uh, showed uh, Governor Tim Walls, I think, with a big advantage, four and a half million That's dollars right. at the end of uh, May, compared to about six hundred and sixty thousand for Scott Jensen. Uh, what do you make of those numbers? Abu? Well, I think two things. One. People like Tim Walz. (laughs) I mean, ultimately, they're voting with their pocketbooks and they're saying, we support you. We support everything you've done to get us through the pandemic. I think he gets to sell a comeback story in Minnesota. And then this other thing I think it says is that Scott Jensen is a deeply flawed candidate. Um, He's going to be easy to define when you have a seven to one cash advantage. 
um, the DFL has over um, Scott Jensen. It's going to be very easy to define him. And ultimately, he's a doctor who told others, or that's the belief, that they should think about not getting the COVID vaccine. Minnesotans, that is wildly out of step with where the suburbs are, where most of Minnesota is. Um, that's an issue that I think he's going to have to address. And then the other part is he's kind of squishy on Republican issues. And so, for example, you, there are pictures of him standing with mom's demand action around gun control. And so he, there's a portion of his base that doesn't truly trust him. And so I think that's the reflection of it. Tim Walls has a broad base all across Minnesota, not just in the metro, but southern Minnesota, where he represented as a congressman. Whereas I think Scott Jensen's really going to struggle to find his coalition outside of the strident Trump areas of Minnesota. Brian, what do you think? Uh, Scott Jensen easy to beat? Um, well, uh, obviously not. Um, I think that uh, that uh, it is very easy for people to look at non-traditional candidates, you know, like President Trump, like uh, Scott Jensen, and, and say, well, they, they don't fit the mold. This is what people aren't going to like about them. And I think that we're having to redefine what the electorate is looking for in some of these candidates. They're looking for authenticity. And uh, much the same way the Republicans you know, think that that Governor Walls should be defined by closing schools and by closing bars and restaurants. I think that Democrats really want uh, Governor. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> you really want him <laughs> to? Do I, I, I don't know. I, I'm sorry. I apologize uh, profusely. But but Dr. Jensen, they uh, really want Dr. Jensen to be uh, defined by the vaccine issue. And while I do think Minnesotans got vaccinated, they believe in them. Um, but they also, you know, they, they don't like uh, you know choices being taken away from them. How they do, how they uh, handle their own med- medical decisions, those of their family. And with Dr. Dr. Jensen, with uh, some of the non-controversial positions he has taken, that uh, could be a problem and also could be a strength because he is willing uh, to at least discuss issues that some Republicans aren't willing to discuss. And he's been penalized for that. But I think in a different era, he would have been celebrated for that. Brian McDaniel is a Republican strategist. Abu Amara is a DFL strategist talking about politics this hour. And let's take a caller, Alan, on the line from Columbia Heights. Hi, Alan. Go ahead. Hey, thanks. I, I, there's a lot of things that I'm disappointed didn't happen this session around like mental health and um, homelessness stuff. But I'm very much disappointed in the low-hanging fruit about the federal infrastructure money that we're going to be missing out on because we just couldn't. I mean, using that as a political football, it seems like to not get other bills done. And now we're going to miss out on tons and tons of money that should be ours, but it's not. So I just want to bring that up. All right. Uh, Brian McDaniel, is that true? We're going to miss out on a ton of money? Well, here's what I can say is um, I share the the caller's frustration. One thing I can say is that one of the few bills that they did pass uh, was uh, something that dealt with mental health. And uh, it's being celebrated as a good bill. It could have been much bigger, um, but they did actually get uh, something done. On the federal infrastructure bill, there was a huge federal infrastructure bill with lots and lots and lots of money coming to Minnesota. Some of that money, um, it's not, we're not quite sure how much it's like 50 to 100 million dollars won't be accessible uh if we don't do something that's a lot of money minnesota wants that money minnesota should have that money is that enough money uh to make them all come in and start agreeing on other things probably not but um you never want to leave money on the table so i hope that that discussions continue and that we can get access to that money 
Abu, what what else uh, was lost without a special session? What else goes away? Yeah, so first off, I think, Alan, the, the caller's spot on. And I think that's a sentiment of most Minnesotans. I think most Minnesotans said we had a historic surplus. We should have done historic things with those resources. One big area that I just think is just so underappreciated is in education. I mean, we had two years of parents having to you know, work at home while their kid was sitting next to them at the kitchen table and trying to make sure their homework was done. And parents have gone through so much and our schools have gone through so much. And this was a good time with a surplus to invest. And the Democratic proposal was to put $1 billion into our schools, our teachers and our kids. And that didn't happen. And so I think that's an area where um, when we look back and we say some of the big opportunities we missed to really make sure our kids caught up through the pandemic, and we laid a foundation for them to be successful in the future, education is going to be one of those. Brian, what do you think uh, was lost by the legislature not getting its work done besides transportation, education? Um, yeah, and on education, you know, you know, there was an agreement on uh, on how much money to spend. The disagreement was where to spend it. You know, the the House and the Senate agreed on hundreds of millions of dollars to go uh, to what they call the the cross subsidy, which is special education funding. I really wish that would have happened because they did agree on that. There were other things around literacy and other things where they where where they didn't agree. Um, but you know, t- taking education and uh, and uh, um, and uh, transportation, transportation uh, taking that out of the mix. You know, I mentioned earlier that there was a there was a huge historic tax bill with mm-hmm. uh, that you know dealt with uh, you know getting rid of the you know federal conformity um, for some of the loans that went to. Um, bars and restaurants that uh, that were uh, that were shut hmm. down. Um, the stuff about around social security tax, um, you know, just stuff that would have benefited everybody. Uh, that is lost in health and human services. There were, you know, in the house bill, there were there was lots of money going to like local public health, which is very important. In the Senate HHS bill, they had money going to to nursing homes uh, that was also very uh, very important. Um, that's not going to happen. Uh, the the the, uh, the the, the, you know the public safety money that Abu and I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So there was lots in there. Um, the one thing that I would say is that if you're not going to do something historic with our money, then don't forget it's our money. So holding on to it um, because we hope that that Republicans are going to be in, contr- in control next year. Um, that's a, a dangerous proposition and something that I think needs to be addressed. If Republicans are in charge next year, will will that spending happen or will it be uh, an eight billion dollar tax cut? Well, I don't know that all of it would go to tax cuts. Um, you know, you know, there's there's lots of different ways that you can get the money back to Minnesotans. Um, I think one of the big fumbles uh, that the Walls administration did is having the rebate checks be called Walls checks. That's almost political malpractice that they did that. Uh, that almost makes me think that they definitely did not want them to go back. But it's the people's money, and while I would rather see it, uh, you know, uh, dealt with by way of tax cut as opposed to just straight rebates, um, you know, that money, you know, we, we have. A, we have a rainy day fund that's fully funded. Um, that money needs to go back to the people one way or the other. What do you think, Abu, if uh, Republicans are in charge, as as they appear to think they will be uh, next year? Do you think it'll be a big, heavy on the tax cuts, lighter on the spend? Of course it's going to be heavy on the tax cuts. It, whether If the economy's good, they want tax cuts. If the economy's bad, they want tax cuts. doesn't matter. They want tax cuts. We know that their proposal is going to be disproportionately on the tax cut side. And I think that's dangerous for a couple of reasons. First, As we just saw with the Federal Reserve getting ready to raise interest rates, we are entering an uncertain economy. You can see Moody's and others predicting a potential recession in Q4 of this year or early next year. The idea that we would 
basically take all of our money that we have now, give it back as you'd like to propose it, and then the state is in a very difficult financial position. And yes, the rainy day fund is fully funded, but that is a minuscule amount of the total amount of spending that happens in Minnesota. That could set up our state in the future, 2023, 2024, to end up having to raise taxes again. And I think that's something we should be thinking about avoiding. So I think part of what we need to do if Republicans take control is the governor's really going to have to set the tone as basically the goalkeeper of saying, you know, these giveaways to corporations can't happen. And I'm going to make sure it doesn't. We're going to tart in targeted ways. We should be providing relief to middle class Minnesotans, small businesses, etc. But the idea that we're going to let Republicans just cut taxes for the largest corporations, I think, is something that the governor won't allow because um, he you know, fingers crossed, we'll still be governor. I guess we'll see who's governor next year and we'll see who controls the legislature. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're talking about Minnesota politics today with two two very articulate and, and smart strategists. Uh, Abu Amara is a Democrat. He's here, Brian McDaniel, Republican. And I wanted to, uh, oh, I want to tell our listeners, too, if you have a question about Minnesota politics or the campaign, give us a call. 651-227-6000 is the number. 651-227-6000. You can also uh, use the toll-free number if you are still concerned about toll calls. 1-800-242-2828. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the January 6th uh, committee that's been meeting out in Washington. some really uh, tough stuff yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, if you were listening. Uh, Mike Pence in pr- physical danger. I think the protesters were 40 feet away from him at one point. And uh, this is all coming because, uh, at least according to the committee, President Trump did not want him to certify the election. And people in the White House who were advising President Trump knew they didn't have the power to do that, but were pushing Pence to do it anyway. Uh, Abu, let me start with you. Do you think this is getting through to people? Are people listening to this? Well, I I believe they're beginning to listen to it. I think the first uh, hearing, I believe 20 million people watched. And and that's a significant number, you know, in this cable news cycle of people chasing, you know, 500,000, you know, viewers or whatever. So I think people are beginning to pay attention. The question is, is are people going to understand that that is not something that happened in the past, but it's simply a continuation that we are going to face into the future. It is a threat in the 2024 election. And I think that's what the House Democrats on the Select Committee and Liz Cheney and others have to connect to voters. Why this matters, not just from a historical standpoint, but from there is a clear and present danger to our democracy now, and you must be a part of making sure that doesn't happen. And so I I expect Democrats to very simply say this. If the, the Republicans take control of the House... They will kill this select committee. The Republicans in control will stop investigating what happened in January 6th and how it could threaten our future. Brian McDaniel, what do you think? Are, is this getting through to people? Are they paying attention? You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, they, People talk about the 20 million people watched uh, the first night, but also that night they, they lost to a rerun of Young Sheldon. So uh, the well, numbers, it's a good show. It's a good show. The numbers, so, like the show. numbers sound big, um, but I think this is something that people who are already invested in politics are already watching. I don't know how many people that have not made up their opinion. Um, I don't know how, how this is affecting them, but I will say that, and this is not something that everybody on my side of the aisle believes, I think it is so important that people watch this. This is a stain on our political system 
on our democracy, on uh, in our history. And I don't think that that should be sugar-coated or whitewashed or whatever word you want to use. Um, I, from watching you know, and listening last night, um, I didn't re- realize that so much of what Vice President Pence did was heroic, that he did stand up. There were, you know, from the outside, it just seemed that nobody was trying to be a check and balance on, uh, on uh, uh, you know, President Trump and the people that were uh, advising him inappropriately. But uh, there were lots of people that were, you know, uh, Bill Barr, uh, Vice President Pence. And then when he was in physical danger, which he was, um, he refused to leave. He didn't want the American people to see the Vice President of the United States leave the capital uh, on the podcast, Ryan, about everything that, that thank, thank you for mentioning that. But we had uh, um, uh, Congressman uh, Dean Phillips on the show mm-hmm. uh, just, just two weeks uh, after uh, it went down and hearing his tale of Republicans and Democrats not knowing what was going to happen to them. It was chilling. And uh, this is something that I think emphasizes, and I know that this is something Obu and I will disagree on, I think it emphasizes how we have constitutional safeguards in place to stop things like this from happening, but it also is a reminder that we can never take our eye off the ball because um, because you know those things can be taken away uh, very easily. Well, why are so many Republicans, uh, both rank and file and uh, candidates and office holders, so reluctant to say what you just said and and so convinced that uh, the election was rigged and there's all this cheating going on. Well, I think that, I mean, you can believe that there are election integrity issues that are in our state or in our country and also believe that the that the the, the election was not stolen uh, from President Trump. If you I mean, if you talk to President Trump, like who he's really mad at, it's a lot of Republican secretaries of state. It's a lot of Republican governors. You know what happened in Georgia? Um, you know, that was with a Republican governor and a Republican secretary of state who both were able to survive uh, Trump led primaries against them um so i think that this is something that that you know shows it it was a group of people who were going to try to hold on to power by any means necessary but ultimately that is not something that our system allows and it didn't allow it the people were voted out um uh and then they weren't able to uh continue with something that that was legally not possible and that's because we have elections and we have safeguards that that that, that led to the peaceful transfer of power. Abu Amara, uh, Mike Pence showed courage on January 6th, but it's are other elected right. Republicans showing the courage to speak out against this? Well, so two points. So did Mike Pence do the right thing that day? Yes. And, and I applaud him for that. But he did what every other Democrat did on that exact same day. There was So to the second point, there is a systemic failure in the Republican Party to simply follow the results of an election. That this, we got to the point where one person could have decided, you know, whether we entered a constitutional crisis because so many others failed to do their basic constitutional duties. And some of them, I believe, ultimately, we'll see what the courts say, um, committed crimes in, to, to reach those ends. And so I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that, yes, Mike Pence, again, he did the right thing. And I'm grateful that he did that. But we can't say checks and balances worked, that the system worked if a system comes down to one person, right? Had Mike Pence said, you know what? All right, I'll follow you along. 
all of a sudden the system is entirely lost. We have a constitutional crisis. That is a form of revolution, um, basically saying the will of the voters will not be listened to. And so part of, again, I think we've got to tie this back into this election. And, and so when we talk about inflation, when we talk about gas prices, those are real. Those are things that have to be addressed. Everyday Minnesotans are feeling those. But I don't want us to lose sight of the bigger picture. If we don't have a democracy, I don't care what the price of gas is. If we don't have the American democracy, our project, which is so unique across the history of the world, if we don't have a democracy, I don't care what the inflation is. And so we've got to zoom out here, focus on the issues. They're real. They're substantive. Put forth proposals. But we've got to, under, we've got to make sure Minnesotans and Americans understand what is at stake in this election and in the 2024 election. It is literally our democracy itself. Brian? Well, I think our, our republic is sound. Everything worked the way it was supposed to work. Uh, so people can go back to focusing on gas being $6 a gallon. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, take another call. James is on the line from Plymouth. James, hi. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I was just wondering uh, to listen from Abu and Brian about why Democrats would rather have investment for the um, cash flow and why Republicans would rather have tax cuts. Why? Why do Democrats and Republicans disagree on how to use the budget surplus? Yeah, so I would say from the DFL perspective, actually, we were in support of both. So there were there were targeted proposals for tax cuts because we understand taxes play a role in, in, you know, overall economic welfare and such. But what we also understood is we were coming out of a pandemic. And so you had many Minnesotans who lost their jobs. You had many Minnesotans who um, were seeing inflation, rising costs. And then you had folks, those same folks who helped get us through the pandemic and making sure that we could support those people coming out. And so, you know, giving someone a tax cut at the end of a fiscal year is not the same as making sure that they have money in their pocket now with a hero paycheck, right? Or it's not the same as making sure that their school is going to receive a check from the state so they can invest in the things that they care about. Tax cuts play a role. There's no question. I don't want to suggest that they don't. But the Democratic proposal about investing in people, investing in our values, those aren't simply the things of tax cuts, right? If we give a large corporation a tax cut and they put that in some bank account, you know, outside of Minnesota, that that is money that we could have invested in the people of Minnesota and the things that we care about, but instead of sitting in a bank account somewhere in New York or elsewhere. And so I think that's the difference of tax cuts play a role, but we really want to invest in people and our values. And Brian, I think it's fair to say that there were Republicans who wanted some spending too, right? Without question. And in fact, what was agreed upon was $4 billion in tax cuts. A lot of that, that went, you know, back to the people, a substantial part of it, most of it, um, you know, going back to people who are paying social security, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, Republicans, they, they, they agreed to spend for, to invest $4 billion. And that was going to go into, you know, education that, but, but, you know, the Republicans were focused on, you know, giving money to nursing homes and uh and and police officers and i think that they're very comfortable telling people we wanted to we wanted to fund uh nursing homes and and cops and the dfl wouldn't go along with it they're comfortable with that message uh let's take another caller murray in beardsley hi murray go ahead uh hello uh thank you for taking my call i have a couple of comments one is uh i'm just frankly disappointed and disgusted that the legislature didn't finish their work and their job, but I'll give you two quick examples where I live. I live in far western Minnesota. We're a small town, and we have an infrastructure problem that we've been asking for help for about six years, and there's been no funding. This year, our senator did request some funding, but none of that got done. 
so now the citizens and the farmers that live in this area are going to be stuck paying most of the bill. And secondly, I'm an educator, a school counselor, and uh, one of the things that was proposed was uh, people talked about mental health in our schools. Well, here was an opportunity to fund that, and that was talked about. But again, that got left on the table. So there's two instances where things that could have been done that would help people and be positive were not done because things weren't completed. So thank you. So let's put this in a political context. Um, which party does it help as folks are running for the legislature help or hurt uh, that the legislature didn't get its job done, Brian? You know, uh, I don't know that it's going to be an election issue come come November. I think it's something that should be. You know, whichever side of the aisle you're on, you should want your government to be functional. Um, we can't forget that uh, this is not a budget year. So uh, it, while we we say, even I do, we say they didn't get their work done, uh, in reality, you know, there wasn't something that they constitutionally had to do. There were things that, that they could be supplementing the budget with because we had some money. Now, the bonding bill, and that was uh, part of what the caller was talking about, that was something that probably should have happened this year and was scheduled to happen this year. And there are uh, small communities and large communities that had uh, very important infrastructure projects that that now are on hold. And that is something that uh, I think that I want people to pay attention to that. I want them to talk to their local elected officials about that. But, uh, you know, Tip, o- Tip O'Neill used to say all politics is local. Unfortunately, that's just not true anymore. And so I think that the global tenor is going to be a much more of the voters focus in November um, than what happened in May uh, or what didn't happen in May in St. Paul. Abu, do you agree with that? Well, I I agree with the caller sentiment. I I think that is what Minnesota, it may have not technically been a a budget year, but Minnesotans understood we had an opportunity to do something big and they expect us to solve problems. Doesn't matter if it's technically an odd numbered year or an even numbered year. They saying, you know what? Let's invest in the things that we care about. And so that caller, I think is exactly right. Now the the issues, I I would agree nationally is probably going to drive much of the narrative. But if you get down to some of these state Senate races, these state house races on the margins, candidates matter. Issues matter. If in his community in Western Minnesota, if 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 there's a highway issue that people understand, it's visceral. They feel it. It's not some abstract conversation in Congress. It's it's saying this road, this bridge, this highway matters to us. And our senator tried to help get along but didn't get it done. We have to ask why. We have to ask why that didn't get done. And from our position, it's very simple: that once hero pay and unemployment insurance were taken care of in in March. The Republicans were not coming to the table to do anything largely substantive. It was kind of kabuki theater from then on out to the end of session. And I think Democrats can make the case. I think maybe Brown would make this case that the DFLers want to spend more money, invest more money in the things that we care about. I don't think that's controversial. And so I think when we go to Minnesotans and we say, look, we wanted to spend and invest more money in the things you care about, bridges, schools, environment. That's an easier argument for us to make than the Republicans to say, yeah, the Republicans wanted to spend a bunch of money. Well, that's just not necessarily the case. I, I, you know, I think there was some posturing there on the part of the Republicans, knowing once hero pay and unemployment insurance were taken care of, they were off the hook and didn't have to do anything going into the end of session. Brian, any quick response there? Well, what I would say is is that I think Republicans are very comfortable with their position on infrastructure, roads and bridges. I think they're very comfortable with their position on um, uh, both nursing homes and uh, and public safety, as we said. And uh, I think that in 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 Greater Minnesota and in parts of the metro area, uh, what the DFL 
wanted to invest in um, is not lining up with their values. But also, you know, there are all Democrats fall into a trap a lot of times of not having one Minnesota, but of having one Minneapolis, where they they kind of have their uh, a cookie cutter approach, and that they the the progressive views of the Twin Cities are then trying to be imported uh, to the rest of Minnesota, and whether that's good, bad, or in the middle, it doesn't work. I'm I'm not sure how you know Twin Cities you know policy is about making sure folks in West Central Minnesota have good roads. I'm not sure what's you know woke about making sure you know a convention center in redwood falls is 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 up and and it's good and you can have you know high school plays there i mean these are issues on the ground this is not some liberal twin cities plot it's simply about investing in the things that all minnesotans care about and when you break it down to that level i think we can resonate all across the state brian tell me a little more what you mean when you say that these legislative races are national or national in scope what do you mean by that well i think that uh if you look at uh where president biden's poll numbers are right now they're in the what, high 30s and at this point in uh, president trump's first term he was in the mid 40s um i think that there is a crisis of confidence um in uh, leaders at the at the national level i think that a lot of people voted against president trump not for um, uh, now President Biden. And I think that there is uh, buyer's remorse, maybe not that they wish they had Trump back, but they kind of say, well, you know what, we couldn't have done better than than uh, than President Biden, who has obviously had a distinguished career and is not on top of his game. And and with uh, uh, Vice President Harris, you know, even trailing him in a lot of uh, popularity polls, um, you know, there's not a likely uh, a plan B there. So I think that when you look at um, the crisis at the border, what's happening in Ukraine, uh, uh, gas prices, uh, things with uh, you know baby formula, with all of these other things. Um, I think that it is largely falling on um, you know President Biden that he hasn't done enough, and we all know some of these things are out of his out of his uh, uh, hands. But guess what? Voters hold you know, elected officials accountable all the time for uh, things. Uh, and just very briefly, in 2006, I was a I was a staffer. Uh, at the House of Representatives, and I would go door to door during campaign season. And I would be told, well, why aren't the Republicans doing enough to get us out of uh, Iraq or Afghanistan? Well, that's not not something that a state representative has anything to do uh, with, but yet th- they were going to be held accountable for that. Abu, uh, can the, again, the question is, can Democrats overcome this? Can they overcome this sort of national disappointment or whatever you want to call it? At the state level? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I fully expect... Uh, Governor Walls to be reelected. I fully expect the ticket to largely be reelected at the at the at the statewide level. And then on the margins, you start to really get into you know 100 votes here, 200 votes there. The state's House, state Senate. When I worked in the House, we lost the House in 2014 by I believe 12,000 votes total. So you start to look at all of the seats. You're at 68 seats in the House to get a majority. We lost by 12,000 votes in total. So. You're really talking about hyper-local, hyper-specific. So the national sentiment's going to play a role, don't get me wrong, but if you really micro-target people, you understand what moves them, what they care about. Like that voter who in West Central Minnesota just called about the bridge. If you can target issues to those voters in a way that makes them feel like you're on their side, I believe you can move them despite the national sentiment, right? So at the national level, I think it's largely fixed in, you know, what's going to happen. The question is going to be, how bad is it? At the state level, I really do believe DFRs have a strong chance to hold so much of what we built over the last 10 years. 
Well, let me ask you about another national issue, because it could come as soon as next week that the United States Supreme Court would overturn Roe versus Wade, the decision that allowed legal abortion for the past 50 years or so. Um, first of all, do you expect that to happen? Second of all, what what are the consequences of that politically? Yeah, so first, I do expect it to happen. Here's why. If the Supreme Court were to flip, essentially, from its leaked opinion, which they did say they wanted to overturn Roe, and then all of a sudden say they don't, that seems to me that they, they kind of cave to political pressure. And that's just antithetical to what the Supreme Court's supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about the rule of law, doing what they believe is right, not caring about public opinion per se, right? So I, I do think it'll happen. The second question is, how is it going to impact elections? And I think this is part of how Democrats can you know, stave off the tide, if you will. Part of where we have to do well is in the suburbs. I think Brian would agree that that's where the fight's going to be largely for the state house, state senate. Well, the suburbs disproportionately are with the DFL on making sure that a woman's constitutional right to her reproductive choices is protected. And so I expect the Democrats in the suburbs to really build a coalition of young women, middle-aged women, older women in the suburbs to turn them out to vote for the DFL. Part of our issue is in November, we have to turn out a ton of different groups of people, African-Americans, seniors, young people, and one of them is women. And so this is going to be not the entire puzzle, but it's an important piece of the puzzle that's going to help us stave off the tide um, in November. Whereas I think it's going to be threatening and hurtful, right? So Scott Jensen's going to have to explain his position. Um, and, and based on my understanding, he is he has no exceptions if you are raped. Uh, for for having an abortion, and so that is a that is a wildly out of step position with the suburbs of Minnesota, but I think generally all across Minnesota. Brian McDaniel, do you think the Supreme Court will overturn Roe versus Wade, and if it does, what does it mean for the election? Well, it certainly seems like it's going to, and when you read that opinion, you know it, it's something that you know I think constitutionally it is correct, and even Ruth I Ga- disagree. And R- Ruth Bader Ginsburg had major issues with. Um, you know, making this, uh, making abortion be, you know, you know, you know, kind of created out of thin air with a right of privacy. She was much more comfortable using the Fourteenth Amendment and the Due Process Clause and and equal protection. And I agree that I think that that is a much more appropriate way to attack this. Uh, however, uh, I I think that it is something that is going to be a major uh, election issue, and it is something that is going to be very um, present in uh, in certain parts of the country, and certainly in Minnesota, uh, in the suburbs. But I think that that people are, are also being a little bit misled in that if Roe v. Wade uh, were to be overturned, that all of a sudden, poof, tomorrow you don't have any uh, rights to uh, uh, you know uh, reproductive freedom. That's not true at all. And in Minnesota, yeah, we have Dovi uh, Dovi. Gomez, which uh, which uh, provides for protections there, and you might say, "Oh, okay. Well, a Republican House, a Republican Senate, a Republican governor, they could get rid of that." Well, they would have the opportunity to pass a bill, and there would be a court challenge, and that court challenge would then go to the Minnesota Supreme Court, which uh, would be very unlikely to overturn it. This is something that I think Minnesotans are looking at other parts of the country, and where there might not be those same safeguards, and and looking to 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 have some some you know some heartburn over. This, but I think that this is something that once again we have things in place to protect our rights, and the Constitution does not. It's the court's not supposed to say these are the rights that we should have, or these are the rights that we want to have. They are to interpret rights. Do we have under the U.S. Constitution? Well, I I just got to say, I'm one point. I think Brian is wrong. He's saying it's not going to impact the women in Minnesota. Here's how it's going to impact them. 
If you have women from all across the country, particularly in the Midwest, who no longer have rights in North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, Wisconsin, and now they are coming to Minnesota, that is going to put a burden on our system. And so women will have less access. Minnesota women will have less access to their reproductive choices. And that is how it's going to impact Minnesota women. That's why it matters. That's why people have to turn out or else women's rights will be impinged. Almost out of time here. Let me ask for some uh, quick predictions. I don't know if you're willing to do predictions, but let me ask. I'm anyway. willing to be wrong. Uh, <laughs> does Tim Walls win a second term or will it be Governor Jensen? Abu? I believe Governor Walls will win a second term and I think it'll be a healthy margin. Brian? Um, I would have probably a much different answer two years ago, two months ago, and two weeks ago. Right now, it, the, the momentum is definitely with Dr. Jensen. And uh, I think that uh, it's going to come down to, you know, does Walls use the money he has uh, to define uh, Dr. Jensen in a negative way? What about Keith Ellison, Attorney General? Wah, wah. I think the Republicans uh, are running uh, somebody who is uh, it does not have controversy uh, with uh, him, and I think that that is something that is going to lead to uh, uh, Attorney General Ellison losing. I think it's close, but I think he wins. All right. Well, uh, I, we're rolling tape. We're going to save this tape, and we'll bring it out in November and see if you were right or not. Well, have us back, please. We will. Thank you so much for being here. That's Brian McDaniel, Republican analyst, Abu Amara, DFL analyst. Thanks so much for coming by today. Thanks Thank for you. having me, Mike. Now, that will do it for our Friday program today. I have to say, we're going to take a summer vacation. Politics Friday will be on hiatus for a while. We hope to be back for the August primary and the state fair, but I guess we'll just have to see what happens. Our producer today was Jessica Bari. She did an excellent job, as always. The program was directed by Jeff Jones, and we had help today from Knock Bowie. Our technical director was Jess Berg, also doing an excellent job, as always. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks so much for listening. Try to stay cool. Have a great weekend and a great summer.